Hi there, friends, and welcome to this episode of Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed Senior thesis process and experience. I'm your host, Amelie Andreas, and today, anthropology major Demeter Anderson will be telling us about her thesis looking into differing forms of nationalism in post-Soviet Union Kazakhstan. And as a bonus, we'll also get her opinions on the best and tastiest cut of horse meat. Take it away, Demeter. I'm Demeter Anderson. I use she, they pronouns, and I'm from kind of Germany and Hawaii. I moved around a lot growing up. Uh, I was in the anthropology department, and I also had a minor in Russian at Reed. And the name of my thesis was um, Blossoming from the Steppe, Nationalism and Culture in Urban Kazakhstan. Wow. Then with this thesis, we're kind of taking ourselves out of out of the Portland, Oregon setting of Reed College and into this new environment of Kazakhstan. Can you give us like a little bit of a summary of kind of what you were looking at in your thesis? Like maybe talk a little bit about what the step means, um, why Kazakhstan was like the place you chose to set your thesis in, any of that kind of stuff. We're here for it. Um, I initially chose Kazakhstan because I wanted to study abroad for Russian language stuff, but I didn't want to go to Russia since I had visited there before and I wanted something different. And so I went to Kazakhstan and I studied there for a semester at um, Nazarbayev, or not Nazarbayev University, excuse me. I studied there for a semester at um, Al-Farabi University. I'm planning on applying to go to Nazarbayev University, which is in uh, North Sultan. Oh, cool. But I was studying in Almaty, which is kind of the cultural capital of the country. And I initially wanted to do research about shamanism there, but uh, I wasn't able to go back over the summer because of COVID. Mm. So I decided to focus instead on, you know, what I experienced, which was more of urban life there and urban design and remnants of Soviet architecture, along with um, like government institutions. And I kind of wanted to write a thesis that can explain that and kind of dispel some myths about um, post-Soviet countries that are kind of in a lot of Americans' minds because they don't really know much. Yeah, no kidding. Can you give us like a little bit of a fact check? What would you say are the most important things you realized about this area of the world that might like surprise people or might go against what some like stereotypical ideas are of post-Soviet Union Kazakhstan? Um, One big thing for like stereotypes about Kazakhstan is Borat, of course. I kind of had to address that in my thesis in the beginning Um, because the movie makes a lot of claims about like his character in the movie is very anti-Semitic, which is very like untrue to reality when um, it's like during World War II, Kazakhstan was one of the places that actually accepted Jewish refugees, which uh, America didn't and the you know, like UK didn't. Um, so it's kind of like weird to then have this character that's like, oh, I'm from Kazakhstan. We like our whole national thing is built around, you know, being anti-Semitic. So that's a big like myth about the country. Um, and then also one thing that like from living there kind of people have this image of post-Soviet countries as like very dreary and all the buildings are look at the same, you know, they're all like run down. Mm, Yeah. And even if some of them are like on the inside, people care about their apartments and they most of the time look very, you know, nice and like clean on the inside. There's not really like that same Mm. derelict look that you get from just a concrete facade that, you know, hasn't been painted in a while. And there are also a lot of like very beautiful mosaics on those buildings that, you know, differentiate them. So that's kind of somewhat of like a, overstepping of like logic where it's like oh the outside's bad so it must you know look bad on the inside but that's kind of you know people care about what they 
can actually you know do instead of the whole building which they don't really have the resources for that as like an individual person yeah people are still going to be making their space their own people are still people and they want to have a nice nice home yeah exactly so how did you kind of get interested in um, looking at, at Kazakhstan and learning Russian and anthropology and just looking at the world in this way? Um, I think moving a lot so much, I was really exposed to like a bunch of different cultures growing up. So it was something that's always interested mm-hmm. me. And I wanted to like go into a field where I could travel, mm-hmm. meet other people. And it's not just, you know, very stuck in one field, like one area uh, with a very similar like mindset from a lot of people. So that's kind of what got me into anthropology initially. Um, and I kind of just chose Russian because, uh, like read requires you to take a language and mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I grew up in Germany, so I didn't want to take German cause I knew I would like mm-hmm. slack off for that. And then I also like, don't like France because of growing up in Germany. So I was like, I don't want to take French. Um, and I know I couldn't roll my R, so I was like, I don't want to do Spanish. So then it was like mm-hmm. between Russian and Chinese and I was like, Chinese is going to be way too difficult. Um, so I took Russian and then I later learned they roll their R's. So like category kind of uh, didn't matter too much but um and I also have some like family that was like from Russia so it was mm. kind of a bit of like uh, maybe I can like connect to that like long forgotten cultural route um actually like yeah. learned a bit because I had family that were Odessa Germans and a lot of them actually got like deported to Siberia and Kazakhstan oh my gosh during the Stalinist era so it's like Maybe I have some long lost family in Kazakhstan if I ever go back. Wow, definitely, definitely good reason to to keep visiting and to keep searching. That's so cool. What did your thesis like? What was your process when you're putting your thesis together? You mentioned that you kind of had to pivot a little bit from this shamanism idea to looking more into nationalism. So, like, what was your day to day when you were writing this thing? Uh, my day to day was largely focused on. Uh, going through images and also like looking at a lot of scholarly stuff or scholarly articles that mm-hmm. kind of are doing like about the debate about Kazakh or Russianization because there's a big debate on you know oh how much was the Soviet Union russifying people um and like this uh how much was there like Russian chauvinism during Soviet Union and it's a very complicated thing because a lot of the time the most like russified people were like not necessarily Kazakhs within Kazakhstan because it was really Europeanist was tied to like the remnants of like Imperial Russian movements of how Imperial Russia would move around people and kind of some of that translated into the Soviet Union. And so those groups that were kind of moved around were considered European and they were often the most like Russified groups um, because of kind of being detached from their their homeland in a lot of ways versus um, a lot of Central Asian groups there was a bit of Russification going on, but there was still a large um, like retaining of, you know, uh, their own languages, Mm -hmm. even if there was a large amount of them started to learn Russian. No, that actually makes sense though, because when you are so isolated from your homeland, I mean, I also traveled a lot um, as a kid and I know that like you, you definitely pick up on uh, like the habits and the the culture of the places that you you've lived, like it really does become a part of you much more easily than I can imagine if someone just you know came into your home and started trying to change things, for instance. So, what kind of skills were you building during this process? Um, I think I was mainly improving on my like research capabilities because COVID kind of really changed how what I wanted to do for like a thesis had to really change a lot because I couldn't, you know, travel. I couldn't 
conduct interviews as easily. So it was a lot more of doing research into scholarly articles and then also doing research into like songs and like public posts from people. Like one section of my thesis, I was focusing on uh, this Soviet song about um, a female uh, sniper from the Soviet Union or from uh, Kazakhstan oh. that she killed, I think, 78 Nazis before dying. And she was oh, like, wait, I think I might have heard of her. Is her name like Ludmila no, or something? Ludmila is from uh, Ukraine. Ah, damn it. So there's there's even more awesome, awesome, like post-Soviet Union sniper women out there that I haven't even heard of. That's amazing. Yeah, there is a large amount of uh, uh, women that joined the military during the World War II. Uh, there was like a whole aviation unit that was like all women uh, that was like very notorious, like from the Nazi wow. point of view, where the Nazis kind of hated them because they, you know, never were able to like shoot them down, <laughs> do night missions. Yeah. So there is this monument in Almaty that's commemorating uh, the one woman the song's about, and then also another uh, woman, Amanchuk Mabatova, who was a like a machine gunner. It's kind of the statue replaced where the Lenin statue used to be. Mm-hmm. So in my thesis, I talked about how they kind of kept the Soviet aesthetics of the square where it still is like uh commemorating somebody from the soviet union mm-hmm. but they change it to more uh kazakh national focus so that you know kazakh can feel more national pride in the building of their nation since independence while you know people that are russian or german or uzbek that are in there they can kind of feel more connection to uh we were like all you know together during world war ii and we have this kind of like eternal bond because of that of like the sacrifice of our mm-hmm. our ancestors and kind of that connection Kazakhs are about 50% of people, and then it's like 30% Russians and a lot of other groups that have been in there for like a shared period of time. And there's kind of discourses to integrate those people as like not like immigrants or, you know, colonizers, because Mm. a lot of it was from like uh, deportations of Mm -hmm. like ethnic groups. So it's kind of like, oh, you know, we all went through like a shared trauma and like things during the Soviet Union. So like, we're, you know, you're also brothers here in our nation and we're like a nation of nations. Um, mm-hmm. But then at the same time, they have to appeal to more, you know, hardline Kazakh nationalists that are like, mm-hmm. we have our independent country now, like, let's focus on us and like our language and not like keep Russian. But there mm-hmm. kind of has to be a balance between, you know, appeasing everybody and kind of figure out like to keep the fraternity between nations that existed during the Soviet Union. I see. So there's almost like two overlapping ideas of nationalism and what that looks like one that's more like you said hardline Kazakh nationalism and the other that is a bit more broad and encompasses this past with the Soviet Union and all of these displaced peoples who are now a part of you know Kazakh history for better or for worse and then there's also like a more like western assimilationist view that's kind of wants to be like okay there's Kazakhs and then like Russians and Ukrainians because there's I think about like a hundred, there's over a hundred different ethnic groups within Kazakhstan. Wow, that's impressive. That's amazing. Yeah, there's a assimilationist view though that wants to kind of reduce it down into like six or eight categories to kind of, and kind of it makes it easier to promote, you know, assimilation into like, oh, learning Kazakh if they don't really have to, you know, argue as much about like keeping language programs for different groups. And um, because there is debates from, you know, within parents and like mm-hmm. also within the government of like what languages people should be learning um because the goal for Kazakhstan for 2050 uh, is that everybody is trilingual in 
Russian, Kazakh, and English. Oh, wow. But then the debate gets in like, okay, if somebody is Uzbek, then they have to become like quadlingual if they want to also like, you know, keep that. If they're Tartar, they have to become quadlingual or like, you know, any of those groups that aren't Russian or Kazakh kind of, where do they fit into that? And should they be like, how do they retain their culture? And there is, you know, attempts to do that. Like there is still like within Almaty, a Korean theater that puts on plays in Korean. Um, there's a German theater. Um, there's the Kazakh theater. There's like a Russian theater. There's Ukrainian theater. I think there's a Uyghur theater as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so there's, you know, there still is cultural institutions that are remnants from the Soviet Union. And there's kind of a, how do we preserve these and also uh, deal with new, new nation building that's been going on since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah, that's amazing as well. Like, I just, I'm, I'm astounded by what a, you know, culturally rich experience it must be to live in a city with all of these different, you know, people coming together. And I can't even imagine having theaters from all those different places and all those different perspectives here in Portland that I could just, you know, go to and and, and see something new and wonderful every weekend. Oh, yeah. It's a, I, re- I can't wait to go back. The food, I miss it a lot. Ooh. What was the, what's the best um, Kazakh dish? What's your favorite Kazakh dish? I mean, I had a really good horse while I was there. What? <laughs> they they eat horse there which it's a I feel like it's not really that much of a debate because I feel like somewhat of it is like people without the cultural context being like oh my god they're eating horse but then it's like okay I think (laughs) I mean it's not any weirder than eating a cow if you zoom out so and I think people that have a more intimate relationship with horses since they you know have been nomads for thousands of years and you know still Mm. raise horses um and like for many different purposes beyond just like writing it for fun and like questionnaireism mm-hmm. as in like the western world um mm-hmm. so it's like i think they probably have a better uh you know decision over who can yeah wow so it was good though you you you're you're a fan yeah it was like horse cheek which is i guess a oh. cut you can kind of only have from a horse since they have long faces um, yeah never thought of it that way but yes that's true and it was <laughs> Probably the most tender meat I've had. Like it was like cuttable with a, a wow. spoon. What with a spoon? Oh my gosh. Well, maybe, maybe I'll need to try some horse cheek then. But that was in like a more fancy restaurant, but a more traditional way of it is a bishbar mak, which is like a it's a stew of noodles and horse meat and like lamb meat. Wow. So a little a little bit of lamb mixed in, you know, to kind of ease you into the 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 horse eating and then mm-hmm. I miss how much lamb I was able to eat there. Just much more common of a meat. I also like wasn't eating pork at all because um, my family was Muslim and we never ate pork. So like when I got mm-hmm. back to the U.S. and had pork again, I, like my stomach was in for a bit of a ride. Wow. Yeah. It's always crazy when you're coming back to your home country after being abroad for a while, experiencing that like reverse culture shock is such a weird feeling. I don't know. Besides food. I don't know. Uh, I guess one thing that uh, was reverse culture shock is just I had very like fruitful political debates with like random people while I was in Kazakhstan. I felt like people were a lot Mm. more open minded in some ways Um, Mm because even people that were like that I met that were like yeah self proclaimed capitalists were like able to actually have a talk about the Soviet Union that wasn't like oh yeah they just like killed everybody. It was just like, okay, now what about like people wanting to like mm-hmm. exploit the system and like not do anything and like having actual debates beyond just like mm-hmm. socialism bad. Yeah, exactly. No, it's always super refreshing to go somewhere where you actually can have conversations with people who have different 
ways of thinking than you and have it be a, a positive and fruitful experience rather than just something that's like draining and circular as it can so often get here in the good old United States. <laughs> yes, exactly. So did you encounter any like unexpected challenges? Because you're kind of talking about something that might be a little bit of a touchy subject for some people. Um, but it sounds like you had some really interesting conversations. Like how did that, how did that work out for you? Um, I think the biggest challenges I had was like whether to interview people that I met, like, you know, call them up and try to mm. figure something out or to just go off of like public facing comments that people have made. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's, since it is somewhat of a sensitive topic talking about like nationalism, um, and, you know, state building and kind of politics, um, there is, you know, do you really want to involve people if they, you know, are worried about that or if it could be a problem? So that's why I yeah. chose more public facing comments. And like, I have a section in the beginning of like a few memes that people posted on the internet, um, because <laughs> there was a thing of changing the capital from Astana to Nur Sultan, which is the the last name of the first president that was in power for decades um so like and a lot of stuff in the city is named after him so there's like you know one of them that's like called like Nazarbayevception that's you know like oh in this picture is Nursultan in Nursultan like library in the city of you know Nursultan um so like I chose things like that because it's you know a bit humorous to get people interested along with uh you know people posting it I'm sure or like aware of if they post it online you know that if they have worries about that, that it's kind of already out there. So that's a bit of a less of a concern. Mm-hmm. So what ended up being like the outcome of the project? And that can be something, you know, more tangible, or it can just be something really interesting that you realized, maybe something that you realized you might want to spend a bit more time on now that you've graduated. Like you mentioned, you might be applying to go to a university back in that same region again. Uh, yeah, just kind of, I wanted to focus more on somewhat stuff related to this topic, there's a lot of music and like uh, contemporary music and like rap music that's coming out that is like has some political tones. So I might do a paper about that if I uh, go to that university and have to do a thesis. And it kind of, I was looking at maps a lot and like, you know, street layout and design as part of one part of the thesis. So I've, this uh, year I'm doing a whole certificate uh, certification at PCC for uh, mapping stuff. So that's- Oh, cool. This has somewhat pushed me in that direction of just like, I should be able to make these maps myself instead of having to, you know, use like Google Maps or something like that. I kind of have two plans of either staying in academics or I might apply to work for uh, like level design for a games company in Russia if I possibly could. that would require me doing kind of a different thesis though. If I get to that university, I'd probably mm-hmm. do a, a thesis about post-apocalyptic landscapes um, and visuals from Soviet Union and um, post-Soviet Union. Uh, Cause the game is kind of like a post-apocalyptic game set in Russia. That's super cool. Yeah. And I can kind of see like, you know, how we've got this little, little pathway from like the anthropology and the monuments to the map making, and then from the map making, getting into this more digital sphere and thinking about like landscapes and then taking that into video games. Like I can see that kind of coming together. Either way, it sounds like you've got some really cool stuff ahead of you. 
and um, that your thesis has definitely played a little bit of a part in, in at least like, you know, bringing that into your mind, bringing that into the realm of possibilities. To kind of finish off, do you have any like advice to someone who might be starting their thesis or or someone who might be, you know, trying to decide which of the the languages they should specialize in for their their anthropology major? Um, for those looking for a language, honestly, pick one. Just pick one and devote time to it and learn about it outside of just class by listening to music and watching movies and stuff like that. Because, you know, every you'll find something interesting with whatever language you, you know, pick at read for doing anthropology. And it's kind of just your effort into it on whether you end up using it in your thesis or not. Because you know, it's a, it's a requirement, but not everybody that does anthro does it. And, you know, plenty of people just focus mm-hmm. on something with the U.S. or, you know, Portland specifically, or other people, you know, really get interested in whatever language that they choose and, uh, you know, countries that speak those languages. Um, so I think for that, just, just really get interested in it and focus on it. And if you have, like, outside credits from before going to read, really just uh, take mm-hmm. your freshman year for people that are doing that to just focus on, you know, languages by having just like Hume one other class and then your language mm-hmm. um, instead of just trying to really overload it because, uh, you know, languages really take a lot of time to learn, but it's very rewarding because it opens you up to just so much more information and like mm-hmm. different views. And that's, I think, really important as somebody that's studying anthropology to be able to have that. Ah, Demeter, you're making me wish that I'd taken a language, and I'm a biology major, so that's pretty impressive. Thank you so much for coming on our little show, and best of luck in your future adventures, wherever they may be. And thank you as well to all of our listeners who took the time to tune into this episode. I hope you'll join us again to hear from more alumni and students about what it means to burn your draft. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe, check out our Twitter and Facebook pages, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. The views, information, or opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Reed College. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Amelie Andreas. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from staff member Joe Janica. Our project manager is Nate Martin, staff member and class of 2016. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillian Pham. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.